Welcome to Sagittarius I, issue 30, November 3306, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed out in the black. Editorial War What is it good for? This is the opening line of one of the very few surviving musical works of the early information age of Earth a period spanning across approximately the second half of the 20th century. Penned by the songwriters Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong, it occupies a hollowed space along with the works of Shakespeare, Beethoven, Homer, and Virgil. The song was written when humanity was under the shadow of nuclear annihilation. And while humanity today cannot practically destroy itself as it nearly did then, the words still reverberate across inhabited space today just as clearly as they did among our ancestors. Minor wars between factions are so common that Galnet barely comments on them. The most recent to be newsworthy, at least until now, being the Lu War of 3301. Colonia, thought by many to be a sleepy retreat away from the bubble, has become the stage for a particularly bitter and long-running war in the Carcosa system. On one side, it is a war to preserve access to Federal and Alliance ships, a cause which, the supporters argue, is a great service to Colonia. On the other side, a cadre of commanders dominated by pure principle seeks to drive what they see as filthy anarchists away. Unlike the conflicts that often spring up in the bubble, which can easily be avoided, in the confines of Colonia the Carcosa War has dragged in a sizable proportion of resident commanders. Bitter accusations fly and diplomacy seems futile. As another songwriter wrote, When two tribes go to war, one is all that you can score. And inevitably, this will be the end result in Carcosa. Meanwhile, back in the bubble, the Dark Wheel continues to grow, backed largely by Independent Pilots Federation members. This too results in conflict, but at least right now, with little resistance or fanfare. This rather shadowy faction marches onwards towards Seoul, Lave, and LFT-509. We are fortunate enough to get unprecedented access to senior representatives of the Dark Wheel and we continue to unpick the mystery surrounding their recent surge in the second part of The Spokes of the Wheel. The galaxy isn't entirely consumed by conflict, though, as we find out about the ongoing Banana Nebula expedition and its scientific goals, as well as the Eight-Wheel Drive Endurance Rally series, in which commanders endeavor to be the fastest drivers of the humble Scarab SRV, or, at the very least, Avoid exploding on some freezing ice world. The Carcosa War In our dangerous galaxy, wherein the most important currency is power, there can be no compromise, only winners and losers. Such has proven to be the case in a recent conflict unfolding in Colonia, many thousands of light years from our ancestral homeworld. Today, we cover the ebb and flow of the so-called Carcosa War to the best of our understanding. A minor power struggle with a massive impact, and a microcosm of how commander versus commander conflicts play out across the galaxy. 
For the uninitiated, all human inhabited star systems are governed by a blend of minor factions and governments. Through conflicts, whether economic, military or political, factions claim assets within systems, such as stations or outposts. A faction that holds all the system's assets is considered to be in full control of that system. Of course, factions can seize assets from other factions by increasing their influence to match the target factions. Once the two factions are evenly matched, a conflict begins, usually in the form of an election or war. Whoever garners the most support or wins the most battles claims an asset from the enemy. Pilots Federation commanders are almost always a deciding factor in these conflicts. Commanders in large groups at the helms of superior vessels flood combat zones, trading lanes and other venues to influence these conflicts towards their favoured sides. Over the past several years, commanders have reshaped the power structure of the galaxy, largely pushing federal and imperial factions out of power and bolstering independent ones. These conflicts, while important to the overall political structure of the bubble, are perhaps even more important in the Colonia region. As a smaller, less developed network of systems, Colonia's offerings to its inhabitant commanders are largely based on which factions control which systems. Certain vessels and modules produced by the major political factions are in limited supply. In certain cases, they cannot be found anywhere in Colonia. At least, not until the arrival of the Nameless. The Nameless are an enigmatic minor faction with mysterious origins and motivations. Commander M. Lehman, a member of Lawrence Reapers and, in the interest of full disclosure, a writer with Sagittarius Eye, has published unconfirmed independent reports of the Nameless's actions titled Into the Black and Shadows of the Past. This anarchist faction has provided a valuable service for the residents of Colonia. While they held Robardon Rock, an asteroid station, commanders could purchase popular vessels manufactured by both the Federation and the Alliance. This correspondent got in touch with Lawrence Reapers, the faction largely responsible for propping up the Nameless in Cocosa, until their recent loss. Commander Renraiku Kordai, an officer in the Reapers, gave their account of events. Lawrence Reapers headed down to Colonia to follow what we believed would be the next phase in the late Lady Kahina Tijani's Lawrence story to help the colonists with engineering and to bring meaningful development to the inhabitants of the nebula. No, this does not mean ganking targets. We chose Carcosa and the Nameless for a few reasons. First and foremost, the Carcosa system is the nameless native home, and secondly, because it was controlled by a foreign faction. Liberating Carcosa and elevating the nameless to the system's controlling faction was a logical step. The nameless took control of Carcosa, and to the surprise of everyone in Colonia, there were suddenly Federal and Alliance ships in the Robard and Rock shipyard. These ships were not available anywhere in the nebula prior to the nameless taking control of Carcosa, a fact which can be readily verified by Ian Doncaster. At this point, our objectives changed slightly. We were not 
here just for personal reasons and to help with the engineers. Instead, we were custodians of a boon never previously seen in the nebula. We felt obliged to keep it safe from insurgency. A conflict ensued for the recapture of Carcosa, instigated by Explorer's Nation. We pushed them back and eventually they had a treaty signed for mutual benefit. Since then, there's been constant pressure both from those that oppose the Nameless from their inception and from the anti-anarchists of the region. We held them off relatively easily for nigh on a year. Now, to clarify the situation. Obviously, an anarchic government encounters certain difficulties when managing political power. This means that an unconventional approach was required to assist in staving off both attackers and random traffic erroneously looking for nameless bounties to unlock engineers. A pilot's federation post was therefore made to notify people entering Carcosa that kill warrant scanners were not welcome. Every pilot that was encountered in Carcosa was hailed and in some cases interdicted and their intentions ascertained. They were then either allowed to proceed on their business or destroyed if they indicated that their actions were hostile to the nameless. Lauren's Reapers are not Genkers, although some of our number have been in the past and some may be in the future, but Genki is not what we're about. Some of us engage in conflict with other commanders, but we enjoy interacting with non-pilots federation entities too. Some of us don't interact with other commanders at all. However, our primary goal is to help the Colonia region and its inhabitants. The political climate of Colonia has a long history of being very close to outsiders. It took a lot of diplomacy to get to where we are. Unfortunately, we felt that there was no other option than to help the Nameless take Carcosa by force. We had spoken to factions in the region and after hearing the stories and reading the history, we had deemed this the only option. You could probably imagine that the emergence of the Nameless and the subsequent so-called intrusion of them into already settled colonial systems left a bad taste in a lot of mouths in the region. No amount of negotiations was going to let them take control of a system they had been pushed back from previously. Our main reason for defending the Nameless is the options their shipyard offer all colonial citizens. Taking that away is not in Colonia's best interests. We are not the only ones defending Carcosa either. Many residents are taking up their fight in their own ways. I assume that they are doing so from the shadows so as not to draw attention to their factions for fear of repercussions from the invading forces, or so I speculate. Commander Paulina Smith contributed her perspective as one of the commanders engaged in defending Carcosa over the past nine months. We started to get attacked around the end of January 3306. Really didn't know from whom yet, so we were helping the Nameless by trading, running missions, and turning in data from exploration trips. It has to be noted that we were only around five active commanders at the time, while our other members took some well-deserved leisure time we were also wet behind the ears with regards to the political action too. Sometime in February, we received intel that Civitas Day was behind the attacks, and for the first time we knew who we were really up against. We tried to find a peaceful solution through CEI, but to no avail. After that, we found out that attacking the enemy helps to get pressure off Carcosa and the shipyard. 
So we attacked Civitas and their controlled systems and set up wars in Pergamon and Hephaestus to keep them busy there. Even as our numbers slowly grew again, we were always outnumbered and needed to find novel ways to protect the shipyard. There was a lot of learning on the fly. There were times it looked bleak for the shipyard, but we could always recover. Our philosophy that everybody is equal helped a lot in gaining the necessary knowledge fast. Shared wisdom is a powerful thing and made the whole endeavor fun and engaging. Of course, now defending the shipyard seems impossible with being outnumbered six to one, but it will be a free port with an exceptional ship selection in the future. That much I can guarantee. Another Reaper, Commander Gold, Seven, added the thought. It didn't start with Kakosa. It certainly doesn't end in it. We made an attempt to bring a peaceful resolution to this conflict after the end of the First War, and we were soundly ignored. So, we will see this through. Commander Paulina Smith concluded. Before anything, we want to thank all our allies and independent commanders who helped us out, especially in the last five weeks. They are the nameless, and nobody can take that away, ever. Indeed, by the time of this conversation in mid-September, the Nameless has lost their dominant position in Carcosa, and seemed to be in decline. This long-running war has generated quite a few conflicting narratives among participating Pilots' Federation members. Commanders can scroll through the posts on the Pilots' Federation forums and see for themselves the anger and accusations that have flowed back and forth through the course of the war. The Reapers' main opponents, the so-called Anti-Anarchists Alliance, or AAA, had their own take on the conflict. A designated representative within the AAA leadership, speaking anonymously, issued this statement to clarify their own perspective. The thing that does not get said, but should be said, is that the Reapers built AAA. They pissed off so many people that AAA formed organically. Nobody had to go recruiting people. As an example of how disliked they are, Ukraine Colonist Alliance has suspended its perennial conflict with the Russian ICUCC because they hate the Reapers more. In other words, two groups that are at war in more ways than one, who hate each other's guts, want to get rid of the Reapers more than they want to fight each other. I find that telling. Explorers Nation, Civitas Day, ICUCC, Colonial Legionnaires, Last Phoenix Vault, and Spear are the publicly declared members of AAA. There are others from the bubble that are providing hidden assistance, and there are more that agreed to stand aside in this conflict and not interfere, while not actively committing forces. As for the treaty, here's how that happened. Cancro Vantis, the leader of Explorers Nation was one of the main organizers of Distant Worlds 2. He was in charge of event security for DW2, and as part of that, he vetted expedition members to exclude gankers. He also teamed up with Lakino to add ED recon program to DW2 to enable explorers to identify potential gankers before they got ganked. This pissed off a lot of gankers. Lauren's Reapers were originally Lauren's Legion, based in the bubble. See the Salome history. 
During DW2, while Explorer's Nation were 30,000 light years from Colonia, Lawrence Reapers was formed and pledged to the Nameless and took over Carcosa, which Explorer's Nation controlled. It is Cancro's opinion that the Reapers pledged into the Nameless, and the assault on Carcosa was a deliberate retaliation for his security measures in DW2. The Reapers deny this. Personally, I'll give the benefit of the doubt to both sides here. The Reapers have a plausible explanation for this, but Cancro thinks it is a remarkable coincidence that the Nameless, of all the Anarchy factions in Colonia, were picked when their home system was an EN system right after the events of Distant Worlds 2. I suspect it is just a coincidence, but either way, that's kind of irrelevant to this treaty. So the Reapers took over Kakosa easily since there was no resistance and proceeded to assist the Nameless in expanding rapidly from Kakosa. Ian, meanwhile, was still committed to Distant Worlds 2 and did not get back to Colonia for two months. When they did get back, the Nameless were present in Explorer's Nation's home system union and were in the process of taking over. Ian managed to stop that and tried to take back Kakosa. They failed in that attempt. Cancro had, over the previous two months, attempted diplomacy with the Reapers, but it was only at this stage, where protracted conflict in Carcosa and Union was on the cards, that the Reapers started to talk. Their position was, we shoot first, start talking later. They offered Cancro a treaty whereby the Nameless keeps Carcosa and the EN keeps Union, and if either side wishes to retreat the other side from their home system, they have to allow the other side to be retreated from their home system. Cancro, facing the possibility that he had no leverage, accepted the deal reluctantly. It was his position that EN was forced to accept a treaty with a gun to their heads. So that's how that got signed. Now the terms of the treaty themselves are full of holes. It doesn't say anything about third parties intervening or either side attacking third parties and thus expanding the scope of the conflict. Late last year, Civitas Day started seeing evidence of Reapers attacking their systems. This escalated and Civitas Day eventually decided enough was enough and went all out for the Reapers. In the space of a week, they approached EN to remove a mutual problem. Colonial Legionnaires made contact about getting rid of the Reapers, and ICU made contact as well. Thus, Triple A was born. A few months go by, and Spear gets involved. Commander Jane Turner was asked to provide strategy advice, and through those connections, I started becoming aware of it all. I was seeing captures of the way Reapers conduct themselves in CEI, direct messages and in person, and I eventually threw my hat in the ring. I cannot abide bullies. Everyone deserves to be a commander, including gankers and griefers. However, anyone who does choose to bully has to accept that eventually you're going to piss off enough people that either they gang up on you or someone like me steps in. In this case, both happened. We actually have a wealth of evidence to support this. The killer captures for me are reapers discussing how to take over all of Colonia 18 months ago. This puts pay to the idea that they are fighting for Colonia. So as such, it was Civitas Day that reopened this conflict. The argument about the shipyard at Rabardan Rock and access to Federal and Alliance ships is something that splits opinion within AAA. People like me think, what does it matter? 
with fleet carriers and the bubble discounts, and the fact that all commanders get their start in the bubble, who in their right mind goes to buy a chieftain in Colonia and exclusively engineers it there? Two weeks ago, I shipped my entire political manipulation fleet out there, including chieftains and federal assault ships. It took me 20 hours on my carrier. Reapers argue that explorers buy them and they sell like hotcakes. I think that's bollocks. They can't even substantiate that claim since there is no way to know how many ships are bought on a given day. Others in AAA are willing to give Kakosa back to the Nameless for the express intent of making those ships available and kill that narrative. But the precondition for that offer will be that the toxicity stops. The reality is, the Reapers were as surprised as everyone when they became available. Nobody knew that would happen. What they do well is push a narrative that everything they do is for the community. I call BS on that. If they were community-minded, they would not terrorize and abuse anyone that does not give them what they want. Organizing Distant Worlds 2? That's community-minded. There is one little interesting point to add. Jane Turner has a strict policy of advising anyone on strategy who asks for it. AAA asked her for advice, so she is giving it. Communism Interstellar has a clause in their Articles of Association which states that any CI member can do things outside of CI's mandate, but cannot do so as CI. Basically, they have to drop squadron tags. Jane has strictly adhered to that. The Reapers, when they found out about Jane's involvement, made a big thing about CI fighting against them. Only, CI is not. As you saw in the public lobby on CI when Allende and I were chatting, CI are pretty clueless about it all. Here is the key thing. Isaiah Evanson, the leader of Lauren's Reapers, messaged Jane, and Jane told him she would offer him the same level of advice. He declined, saying he just wants her gone from the conflict. In my eyes, this is the single biggest mistake they have made. Had they asked her to advise, she would have. In turn, she would have had to scale back her involvement in AAA to maintain neutrality. They shot themselves in the foot with that. In some ways, the Carcosa War is one of the most complex commander versus commander conflicts to date, full of conflicting perspectives and nuanced priorities. In all the ways that matter, however, it's a story that goes all the way back to the first Homo sapiens and beyond. Territorial anger, ruthless killing, and in the end, only two things matter. Who wins? And how long will it be before they lose in their turn? Spokes of the Wheel, Part 2 It is one thing to speculate as to the agenda of a secret society and quite another entirely to see it in action. Recent events suggest that we are living in the latter scenario. Among the worlds of humanity's core, a little reported but earnest conflict is in motion. The Dark Wheel has expanded from its enclave in Shinrata Desra, challenging the local governments of neighbouring worlds, seemingly unafraid of turning entrenched superpowers into adversaries. Already, gains have been made, the banners of the Dark Wheel now fly over Anyanwu, HR4979, LFT926, LTT5455 and Turditani, with newly established presences in LHS397 and the Old World, ARC. 
what to make of this aggressive expansion is open to interpretation. Has the enigmatic group finally declared its intentions, or is this merely the work of imposters? These are the questions this humble correspondent has endeavoured to ask, and which hopefully the Dark Wheel will answer. To find them, a journey to Meredith City in LFT 926 was necessary. This is the de facto capital of the Dark Wheel's fledgling empire, if indeed empire is the appropriate term. Ship traffic is dense round this otherwise nondescript Coriolis station, even from the limited angle of one's viewport. Vessels of every type fly to and from its cavernous docking tube, many bearing the circular logo of the Dark Wheel. The transport sets down and this correspondent is greeted by a young woman. There is a security screening followed by a short walk. Our destination is one of the observation towers overlooking the docking bay. It is a Spartan affair, its grey walls adorned with holographic system maps and a solitary desk in the midst. Striking, tall, solitary figure stands near the slanted observatory glass. Administrator Kai Zen strikes a handsome profile with an angular jawline and piercing eyes. His attire is not quite civilian, yet not quite martial. Handshakes are exchanged along with formal greetings and an unexpectedly warm smile follows. I'd prefer to drop the titles, but if we must use one, let it be Commander. Already the interview is off to an interesting start. Commander Zen continues. I've learned a few things from my years in the black. By far the most important is the truth has its way, no matter what. An unmaintained frameshift drive is not impressed by wit, deception, or bribes. A spent multi-cannon won't reload just because you want it to, and all the dangers of the void are ignored at one's peril. All well and good. What does this have to do with the Dark Wheel? Kaizen pauses before answering. Do you know what people think when they see this crest? He turns slightly. The gleaming platinum of a triple elite badge on his shoulder glints in the observatory's low light. They see mercenaries, traitors, bounty hunters, explorers, scoundrels, murderers, glorified tour guides even. But they almost never see a member of the guild as fighting for something greater. The question of what exactly greater entails is too obvious to ask. Kaizen turns his gaze once again towards the viewport. The engine glow of an outbound Cobra illuminates his profile. The truth is, most independent pilots are in it for themselves. And the getting is very good. Too good to question the status quo. Too good to ask the hard questions. To dig down deep. He glances over his shoulder. A sad smile in his eyes. Too good to put it all on the line for some lost cause. As though to punctuate his point, the door to the observation level slides open. A pilot also bearing the crest of the guild, walks in. The newcomer eyes this correspondent with wariness before accepting a holodisc from Kaizen. He loads it onto a data slate, speed-reading its contents, before snapping it shut. It will be done. There is no salute. The commander turns smartly and exits the room, his every step exuding competence, the door sliding shut behind him. Kaizen nods in his comrade's direction. Commander Phil P., an explorer-turned-wing-leader, 
It's volunteers like him that give me hope. Hope? Of what? That there's more to those that live amongst the stars than greed and malleability. Collectively, the men and women of the Pilots' Federation have the power to sway the fate of humanity if they choose. For a brief moment, the issue came to a head, the forces of truth clashing against the powers that be. But after that... Kai shakes his head. This correspondent gingerly inquires about the moment in question. He turns, his features deepening, his tone earnest. I believe her final words were a plea to remember. We have, and so have others. From Colonia to the Pleiades, the truth lives on in the hearts and minds of more than you know. The Dark Wheel is making a statement to those in power. To those who have appointed themselves as the gatekeepers of truth. And just what is that statement? For once, Commander Kaizen smiles. That we're not coming. We're already here. The flight hangars of Meredith City are a busy place. The glow of massive ships' engines nearly blinding, and the roar nearly deafening, never far from this hub of activity are the ancillary rooms to which pilots and crew are drawn. This correspondent has led to one in particular, a former bar that has been repurposed into a briefing area. It was a rare glimpse into such a nexus of flight operations. All around are women and men at various control stations, their features earnest. Their movement purposeful, hollow displays of ships and systems abound, fleet formations outlined in blue and red icons. The briefing itself is classified, of course, and conducted in a separate room. This correspondent was restricted from asking questions or speaking to any of the operators at work. After a short while, we are ushered into the briefing room, the business at hand completed, but the men and women present, eager to make their case to the public. Black Sky Legion is the name of the Dark Wheel's main battle group, numbering in the dozens and working tirelessly to advance its cause. It is they who challenge the traditional powers, instrumental in overthrowing local governments by force of arms and economics, accepting the risk of being branded outlaws and criminals. There is little commonality among the assembled commanders. Attire and flight suits seem a matter of personal taste. The unity is found in ideology, not superficial finery. There isn't much time before they begin to depart for their ships. That they spared a few moments to answer questions and give statements is remarkable in and of itself. A man steps forward, his eyes keen and his features haggard. His flight suit is more battered than most, and the insignia on his arm marks him out as another elite in the Dark Wheel's service. He introduces himself as Wolf Dragon. His real name, unknown or unused. To be in the Black Sky Legion is to leave your old life behind. We aren't here for the money or the fame. People from all walks of life have ended up here. Folks searching for something more. And have they found it? Another pilot presents himself. Like Wolf Dragon, Misha Maverick is older. His pale skin and piercing eyes telling the tale of a man who has spent his life in the void. His words, raspy and authoritative, command respect. I flew for Kahina Loren, and I never stopped believing in her ideals. 
I've spent most of my career exploring, but I can't turn my back on what's happening here. The truth will out, and I believe the Dark Wheel will be the ones to make it happen. A curious patch adorns the man's flight suit. A furry little animal, smiling and holding a rifle. Misha smiles, answering the unasked question. Rabid Hamster Assault Force, the Dark Wheel's other battle group. Uh, I'm their liaison. Have to be a little crazy to fit in there, I guess. There is no time for further questions. The men and women depart, each one heading back to their ships, each ready to risk their lives for their convictions. This correspondent is escorted to an observation tower, the same one where Kai Zen gave his overview of the Dark Wheel's objectives. Commander Zen is absent, but his ship is the first to rise from its landing pad. Another joins it, and another, and another, until the glow of so many thrusters through the viewport is nearly blinding. The deck trembles with the power of tremendous energy as the Armada departs Meredith City, bound for danger. War has come to the Core Worlds. War unlike any in our lifetimes. Those who perpetuate it are depending on who is asked, usurping invaders or noble liberators. Only time, and the truth that the men and women of the Dark Wheel so fervently claim to cherish, will tell which. Banana Nebula Expedition One of the basic assumptions of the Dyson Galaxy theory is that our own our galaxy needs to function like a single organism, that it needs to be thoroughly explored, densely colonised, and that every system and planet should work in a cohesive manner with all others. We already know that there are other species out there. Humankind is currently fighting the Thargoids. We found remnants of the Guardians, and we can be quite sure that the constructs are around as well, given what we know of their history. In his great work, Dyson Galaxy, Asimov Herbert actually addresses the cooperation of various forms of life as a necessary condition for achieving a state of technological and social cohesion, such that the 400 billion stars of our galaxy can function as a single cell-like organism capable of using its energy and resources in a conscious effort to gather more energy and resources and hence replicate itself. Whether one agrees with this premise that it should force our species to find a way to cooperate with all other forms of galactic life, or, alternatively, with the philosophy that eliminating or dominating an alien species is no less valid, one fact remains indisputable. The work required if the human species is to aid the galaxy's ascension has to begin with the exploration of our galaxy and the gathering of in-depth knowledge about all life forms that might affect the galactic environment. Perhaps the least understood alien life forms currently known are the ancient microorganisms. These form colonies of crystals that can be found floating seemingly aimlessly in various star systems across the galaxy. They are often accompanied by mollusk-like creatures that inhabit the local space near the crystals. Thought to be animals, the mollusks are in some undiscovered way connected to the crystal colonies. They display traits that indicate a rudimentary intelligence, and they exhibit audible communicative abilities. 
Still, their true nature, function and influence on the galactic environment as a whole remain a mystery. Until recently, it was believed that the notable stellar phenomena, the designation for the areas of space which these organisms inhabit, were spread only sparsely across the galaxy. However, in March of 3306, a report from Commander Infwale revealed that an area next to the NGC 3199 nebula, better known as the Banana Nebula, contained thousands of star systems with many thousands of notable stellar phenomena sites. Furthermore, these sites are concentrated into a spherical bubble of around 1,000 light-years in diameter. To investigate this, a group of commanders launched the Banana Nebula Expedition. Fifteen exploration-fitted ships boarded the first fleet carrier, Emperor's Grace, and set out for the Droko IO-KC11-2 system on July 23, 3306, arriving a few days later. Their task? To gather data on NSP site numbers, cloud formations, crystal colony types and mollusk types. Gathering this data is not a simple task. The NSP locations may be problematic for less seasoned explorers, some being situated several hundred thousand light seconds away from their system's entry point. So, while your everyday explorer just scans the systems and maps the valuable planets, banana expedition explorers have to travel to every NSP site in supercruise, then jump in and catalogue the contents of the site. This too can have some challenges. The mollusks are very small and often go unnoticed, radar glitches often being the most reliable sign of their presence. There's also a minor element of danger. The bullet mollusks, a species named after their shape, are often the dominant type and they seem to be quite interested in human ships. They may approach a ship, but when a ship touches or passes closely, they may make a sign of outrage and start attacking the ship's shield, eventually causing its failure. Other than that, they pose no danger. It's still unknown whether our shields annoy them or whether they provide some form of nutrition for these unusual life forms. Since the start of the expedition, more commanders and fleet carriers have joined. Today, Seven fleet carriers carrying over 100 commanders have travelled the 15,000 light-years from the bubble to the Banana Nebula. This significant growth of expedition members has allowed the creation of specialised teams including explorers, data analysts, tools programmers, miners and even rescue services. Having arrived at the nebula on September the 18th, 3306, your correspondent disembarked from the fleet carrier Mavia and transferred to the central exploration hub, the Inflated Whale, at the quadruple star system Smodju LB-BB41-0, to interview Commander Admiral Infwhale about the expedition. So, here we are, sitting in his office, sipping Lavian brandy brought on board the fleet carrier boxcar and discussing the most interesting aspects of the notable stellar phenomena and the expedition itself. Admiral Infwale, what inspired you to take a closer look at the NSPs during your travels and what did you know about them before? NSPs have intrigued me from the first time I heard of them as a child. 
They're rare, mysterious gems in our galaxy. Or at least they were rare. I've known commanders go a whole lifetime without running across one unless they specifically set a course for a known location. So it's the mystery that drove me to search for them. They're often found near nebulas, so you'll see a lot of pretty places and get some nice photos for the family album when you go NSP hunting. As of today, over 100 commanders and seven fleet carriers have joined the expedition. Were you expecting that number of people to join up? Ah, well. I try not to have expectations about anything. It's fair to say that I was surprised the numbers have grown to what they are now. And it's not just the numbers. They're a dedicated bunch, all willing to help out each other with whatever is needed. Ship builds, mining advice, exploration advice, you name it. In two months, you've gathered a lot of raw data. Can you present the most interesting data statistics? Okay. Raw figures today. So we've visited 2,188 systems. They contain 4,018 NSP sites. Now, not all of those NSP sites have been visited, so the following numbers are by no means final. The list so far consists of... Reported ice crystals 1,576, that's crystals of all types. 1,983 mollusk sites, mostly bullet, but some belt types. 336 Lagrange clouds, now that covers all types except storm types, so we're hoping we'll find some of those before we're through. Finally, there's 876 metallic crystal sites, 309 silicate crystal sites, and 47 mineral sphere sites. Have you formed any theories about the notable stellar phenomena, such as their origins or their connections to the local environment? Hypotheses are all over the place right now. I'd lean towards the being an origin system. I mean, if they just popped up wherever conditions were right, these things would be everywhere throughout the galaxy. So I think they must have a point of origin. Now, whether that's in the Banana Nebula itself or in the center of this NSP bubble, as we're calling it, well, I just don't know. The fact that it's spherical in nature and not centered on the nebula makes me think that there's some origin system out away from the nebula somewhere. When it comes to the connection to the local environment, it seems to me that the incidence of the mollusk type versus the crystal type may be related to the composition of the system in question. If we postulate that the most ancient silicate crystal formations and spheres are the oldest structures that form from these organisms, then we might be able to plot out the expansion of this region from its beginnings to the present day. On top of this, we've made two more extraordinary discoveries. The first being moving NSP sites. Some are moving so fast that they may not stop for thousands of years. Others are moving slowly and one we recently found actually settles for a short time and can be explored. Then there's the strange non-fixed cloud at Droke HIQ D6-7. It's diffuse in nature, and when you fly towards it, it dissipates. Personally, I feel that what we are seeing is different stages of evolution of the sites, but what came first, the chicken or the egg? That's something else we hope to answer when we have all the data. What are your plans for the future of the expedition? How much more work is it to gather all the data you need? Yeah, that's the big question. 
You know, I'm open to interpretation, but what the data supports is going to be all important in defining where we go with the further exploration of this place. Right now, the focus is to be sure that this place is a bubble, so we have commanders hunting for the edges. Then we have to gather all of the data on all of the systems, so there are commanders looking for new sites and double-checking known sites. If I had to guess, we've probably only mapped a quarter of what there is to find. So that suggests that we could be here for a year or two. We really need to make sure a full data set is as accurate and complete as possible. Then I think that we'll be well prepared to draw some solid conclusions that the data actually supports. So if this whole thing intrigues some of your listeners, we're happy to accept more commanders. No matter if you just visit the place and map one system, it's one less for the entire project to find. And besides, who doesn't want to be part of something that might prove to be a dramatic step towards understanding the bigger picture of life in the Milky Way? The Eight-Wheel Drive Endurance Championship very few experiences provide a similar thrill to that of rocketing across a low-gravity planetary surface at speeds exceeding 100 meters per second. The risk to life and limb, the utter focus required, it all adds to the spectacle that is scarab-bracing. The eight-wheel drive endurance championship, organized and hosted by Commander Black Maze, and officially sanctioned by the Elite Racing Federation, has encompassed all that excitement and more. When this series was first announced, it was clear that the racing would be quite a spectacle. It was decided that coverage needed to take place on the ground and in the action. One crazy harebrained idea later, this correspondent found himself in the seat of his own scarab, hastily preparing to not only cover the action, but to actually participate in the racing. No amount of dusting off modest flying skills would have prepared this reporter for the fierce competition that this series would showcase. The first round of the series took place on the 26th of July 3306 on Mario Song A2A a small, rocky, canyon-ridden moon with very low gravity. The course covered a modest distance of 85 kilometers in total, running from Colburn Landing to Stebler Terminal. Upon departing from Colburn Landing, races were required to remain within the confines of the canyon walls until they came within 55 kilometers of Stebler. The excitement on the starting grid was palpable as 13 anxious racers, this reporter included, prepared to boost off through the canyon. One of the races, Commander Kate Balthazar, was notable as she filled the course comms with her near-constant banter and friendly jibes toward the other races. At long last though, the race was underway, and soon we were flying through the canyon at speeds of well over 80 metres per second. Merely a few kilometres into the race, the first tragedy struck. Commander Donald Anderson had, after an earlier crash, been forced to recall his ship in order to perform a pit stop. Unfortunately, his ship's auto-navigation made a critical error as it attempted to land within the canyon and collided with the canyon wall, exploding spectacularly. Donald would be forced to face nearly the entire race with a heavily impaired scarab, and no option for a pit stop to repair the damage. As the bulk of the races progressed through the canyon, it became clear who the frontrunners in this series would be. Commanders Shay Blackwood and Alec Turner quickly began to pull ahead of the rest of the field, their extensive piloting experience and research into racing techniques now paying off. This undistinguished correspondent quickly realised that these two drivers would prove to be the focal points of the series and pilots to learn from. Upon breaching the canyon and emerging into the semi-flat terrain above, a tight race formed between Commander Fat Haggard, Commander Donald 47 and this reporter. The three of us were tightly packed as we rocketed towards the finish line at Stebler Terminal. 
First and second place were far out of reach for any of us, but a battle for a podium position raged on. Over the next few minutes, five pilots sustained heavy damage to their scarabs and crashed out of the race. Commander Shea Blackwood crossed the finish line at Stebler, with Commander Alec Turner finishing barely more than five minutes later. The race for third raged on all the way to the finish line, where Commander Fat Haggard grabbed the final podium spot. He was followed by Donald 47 and then an exhausted but thrilled Sagittarius Eye reporter. While waiting for the rest of the competitors to arrive, we spoke to the winner of the race, Shea Blackwood. We asked about his background in racing and how he'd become so fast in a scarab. Shay explained. Prior to October last year, I had no racing experience at all. I attended the full throttle event at Perico on my home system that month, and I have been racing in buckyball events ever since. This is my first live event with the Elite Racing Federation, though. We then asked Shay how he kept his cool while battling for a win, all while speeding across a planetary surface mere meters from crashing. I don't find that part difficult, usually. The keeping your cool. Too much goes into concentrating on getting everything right. Over an hour and nine minutes after Shea had first crossed the finish line, the final racer made his way into Stebler Terminal. Surprisingly, it was Commander Donald Anderson who, though an absolute mountain of determination, had made it through the entirety of the course without a single pit stop due to the untimely loss of his pit ship. Race 2 brought different challenges to the field as it was slated to be a two-stage rally over a total distance of 265 kilometers. Located on Wasat A2E, the course boasted a gravity similar to that of Moriosong, but with a much smoother dust bowl of a surface. Stage A proved to be an absolute sprint as Commander Shea Blackwood was set to repeat his dominant performance in the previous race. However, misfortune struck as Shea collided with a large rock just meters before the finish line at Elwood Camp. His scarab erupted, crumbling into a fiery heap. Moments later, Commander Alec Turner crossed the line, finishing that first stage in a still impressive time of 11 minutes 39 seconds. Commander Fat Haggard and Commander Donald 47 repeated their performances from the first round, finishing up just a few minutes behind Alec. Stage B of the Wasat Rally would prove to be a different animal entirely from the previous competitions of the day. Rather than a sprint, this segment of racing would be a battle of attrition, covering 215 kilometers over much rougher and more unforgiving terrain. At the starting line, it was clear that Shea Blackwood would be eager to redeem himself after his earlier accident. He quickly assumed the lead of the pack and began to widen the field. Surprisingly though, Alec Turner was able to usurp the lead in the early stages of the race, as Shea required an early pit stop. Further back in the pack, did not finishes, or DNFs, were prevalent, as notable racers such as Commanders Fat Haggard and Zach Hugh crashed out of the event. A mighty struggle over third place between this Sagittarius I racer and Commander Donald 47 played out through nearly the entire course, but the spectators were primarily focused on the battle between Shay and Alec for the top of the podium. Eventually, Shay was able to get the best of Alec and redeem himself, crossing the line at bearing point with a staggeringly good time of 46 minutes 9 seconds. Commander Alec Turner crossed the line just 10 minutes later with the rest of the races finishing well over 40 minutes off the lead time. Following the race, we spoke with Commander Crank Larson for a few minutes and asked him what he had enjoyed most about the racing so far. The start of each race is the best part. The rush of SRVs jockeying for position. For the longer races, it's usually only the first few minutes that you'll likely be close to the other drivers. We went on to ask Crank if he had spent time practicing during the series and if he felt that he improved as a racer thus far. Practice makes perfect, as they say. And while I'm a long, long way from perfect, 
I am always learning new tricks with the scarab. Recently I discovered that I'd been getting a little lax on my acceleration, and on checking it was because I'd stopped tilting forward so much on the boost. To give as much forward momentum as possible, you need to be pitched forward as close to 90 degrees as possible. A full boost at this angle will usually add between 5 to 10 meters per second to your speed. The third race of the series took place on the 30th of August at Brockpoint 1A. It was an icy moon with a concentration of surface scattered rocks that would rival even the most inhospitable driving terrain in the galaxy. The slick, icy surface would prove a difficult obstacle to master, as flying and sliding do not necessarily go hand in hand. The course would run 148 kilometers from Anderson Barracks to Rand Vision, a challenging distance to overcome with the hostile surface terrain to contend with. 16 racers lined up on the starting grid, including some notable newcomers to the series like Commander Segur, Commander Hep, and Sir Balthazar. After much racer-to-racer smack talk and heavy anticipation, the race finally got underway. Quickly, it became apparent that the series might be shaken up as Commander Segur boosted forward across the icy surface at speeds exceeding any of the other races, including Shay and Alec. This newcomer amazed all as he was able to consistently maintain speeds of well over 100 meters per second, all while requiring only infrequent pit stops. Shay Blackwood, in an attempt to perform a speedy pit stop of his own, made a fatal error and clipped one of the wheels of his already heavily damaged scarab on an icy outcropping. Unfortunately, this accident fully disabled his SRV and flagged him a DNF in the race. Commander Segur finished the rally with an incredible time of just 37 minutes 26 seconds. Alec Turner, Crank Larson and this Sagittarius I racer battled for the majority of the race over the podium positions, but your correspondent was outmatched as Alec finished in second with Crank crossing the line in third. In total there were five racers unable to finish the race due to crashes. Even though Alec Turner hadn't won the race, he was able to take the series points lead due to Shea Blackwood's unfortunate DNF. Between the third and fourth rounds of the series, we reached out to Commander Fat Haggard, who was not only a racer in this series, but also one of the founders of the Elite Racing Federation. We first asked what his favourite moment of the series had been up to this point. I think my favourite surprise was Commander Skurr showing up and completely dominating the field. I'd like to see him make a return in future SRV competitions. We also asked Fat Haggard what it felt like to participate in these races as not only a pilot, but also as one of the founders of the sanctioning body of the series. Being a participant in an official series is first a major relief. Commander Blackmaze has done an absolutely incredible job of organising, and under his guidance I've been able to really enjoy participating in the event. The fourth race of the series took place on the 13th of September. Located on Jambay ABC-1, a planet thoroughly covered with massive craters, the route from Plexico Colony to Crown Depot would prove to be difficult at best. Many of the racers spent weeks prior to the event plotting routes through the course in efforts to avoid many of the larger craters. This reporter, sadly, did not make any such preparations. The starting line in Plexico Colony, packed with 13 eager racers, made for a spectacular start as it led up a ramp which would launch the racers up to 50 metres or more above the surface. Quickly, Shay Blackwood began to re-establish his dominance as he led the field down towards Crown Depot. With the absence of the prior race's winner, Segur, the two heavy hitters of Shea and Alec were once again able to command the field. Tackling the craters proved to be the biggest challenge for all the races, and once again five pilots crashed out before the end of the rally. 
Shea was able to bring home another win and finish with a time of 1 hour 13 minutes and 27 seconds, with Alec Turner finishing just 11 minutes behind. Commander Zach Hugh rounded out the podium. With three challenging rounds remaining, at the time of this reporting, the series has tightened to an exciting level. Alec Turner retains the championship lead, but with only a small buffer of three points over Shea Blackwood. Somehow, miraculously, your correspondent finds himself in third in championship standings, due not only to impressive speed, but simply consistency in having avoided a DNF in all of the completed rounds. Commander Black Maze's organisation and his amazing commentary of the races has made this series an absolute spectacle. We at Sagittarius Eye cannot wait to see how this series plays out, and we're sure the spectators and fans feel the same. Will Alec Turner hold his point sleeve over Shea Blackwood? Will Shea finally put all of the DNFs behind him and find a way to finish every remaining round? Will Commander Segur reappear in the series and play spoiler? Only time will tell. Thank you for listening to issue 30 of Sagittarius Eye. This issue featured articles written by Adernis M. Lehman, Commander Raph von Thorn, and Osashes, and was edited by Adernis Lee Lockhart, Vertical Blank, and Mac Winston. This audio edition featured the voices of Beetlejude, Catisfaction, Edler Weiss, Kai Zen, Mugiver, Poet Sparrow, Scott Cleverton, Spidey 2 and Wotherspoon, and was edited by Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin, Midnight Driscoll and Toko So. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It is not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius I. And piercing eyes. Kind of like Etienne Dawn. <laughs>